Okay, real talk. When did paying someone back become social media? What do you mean? Like, say I want to see what you're doing and who you're hanging with, and you're not posting about it on your story. I can just stalk your pay app and find out what you're doing. Oh, yeah, that's weird. You do that? No, I don't do that. I use Apple Cash. It's built into your iPhone, easy and secure. You can send and receive money right in messages and keep it between friends, and then use that money to buy something at a store with Apple Pay. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Maybe. Shh. Services are provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Terms apply. Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to Criminalia, where we're exploring the intersection of history and true crime. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Maria Tremarchi. And this season, we are talking about Lady Poisoners. Today, before we begin, we do want to let everyone know that there is content and discussion in this episode that contains descriptions of childhood trauma, specifically sexual abuse, which some listeners may find difficult. In today's episode, we are going to look at the life of Marie-Madeleine Marguerite Dobre, Marquise de Brinvilliers. Did she kill her father and brothers? And if she did, was it for the family inheritance? So Marie was born on July 22nd, 1630 in Paris. Um, She had two younger brothers and one younger sister. There's really not much on record about her mom, although according to many accounts, she may have died during childbirth. And her father was a man named Antoine Dreux-Dobray. He was a civil lieutenant of Paris, so the family was wealthy, influential, and very well known. People often joke that Marie was related to half the lawyers in Paris. Marie, history tells us, was small, um, she was pretty, and she was smart. And I, I think it's funny what details stick to stories throughout the decades. Um, apparently, she also had excellent penmanship. Listen, that's a point of pride. More than 200 years later, biographers writing her story couldn't quite reconcile Marie's, quote, uncommon physical attractions with what came to be known as her toxic hobbies. In one case, for instance, author Hugh Stokes described her as having a soft smile, blue eyes, and a graceful figure. And then he went on to comment about her, quote, unbridled passions of a tigress. I'm not sure how Mr. Stokes would have known that, but um, that is certainly an example of uh, some healthy male chauvinism. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So Marie grew up, as we mentioned, in a wealthy home. So they had a townhouse in Paris and a chateau and a beautiful carriage and a household filled with servants to meet her every need. But although her childhood may sound pretty ideal, uh, narratives about her life suggest that it may have been that Marie was sexually abused by possibly as many as three servants in her family home when she was about seven years old. Uh, And at the age of 10, she may also have been sexually abused by one of her brothers, which is a situation that, as an adult, she referred to as an incestuous relationship. Now, despite all of this troubled situation in her home life as a child, Marie, as an adult, was considered quite a catch. When she was 21 years old, she married an army officer named Antoine Gobelin, Marquis de Brinvilliers. And he was a commanding officer of a regiment, and he was serving in Normandy at the time. The couple was doing really well financially. However, 
Marie's new husband was an incorrigible gambler, and the couple was very quickly in debt. But so remember how we talked about Marie came from a wealthy family? She did, and she had a dowry, and her dowry was substantial, equal to about 262000 U.S. dollars in today's money. But they were running through it really quickly. Stories about this marriage suggest that they had an arrangement where it was an open one, with both partners taking lovers outside of the marriage. Marie's extramarital affairs would, of course, have been gossiped about. But mostly, things would have kind of just been overlooked. That is, if Marie had stayed within high society's rules of decorum. But Marie didn't really care about following their rules. Uh, Not only did she take a lover, she chose to do it with someone who was considered a bad boy. Now, the sort of funny twist here is that it was her husband who actually introduced her to this person. That was Captain Jean-Baptiste Godin de Sainte-Croix, a young cavalry officer with very expensive taste. And for Marie, this was an instant connection. Okay, Um, so here's the thing about being in wealthy society in 17th century France. No one really cared that you were having an affair. They just wanted to thoroughly discuss every single scandalous detail about it. Marie's father and her two brothers saw this as a public scandal, though, and as public humiliation, and they really did care. So when the Marquis de Brinvilliers, who had left France to avoid creditors, made no effort to stop his wife's affair... It was ultimately her father who took things into his own hands. He secured the arrest of Saint-Croix. So Marie and Jean-Baptiste enjoyed riding around Paris in her carriage, which had Marie's coat of arms embossed on the gilded doors. They were really anything but discreet when they drove around. In my head, this is the 17th century equivalent of hiring a limo and standing (laughs) with your head out of the roof yelling, we're having an affair as you drive through the streets. Absolutely, maybe with some champagne glasses. (laughs) Yeah, completely. Marie's father really did have a lot of influence, including with the king, and he was not afraid to use it. One afternoon, when the lovebirds were out taking in the sights in this carriage, the carriage was stopped by the police, and the police were carrying orders from the king that Saint-Croix had to be imprisoned immediately. So he was taken away immediately, and he was incarcerated in the Bastille for... Probably less than a year, maybe give or take a year. The records are a little squishy on that. But it wasn't as though he became an antisocial hermit while he was incarcerated. He was a social gent, and he quickly (laughs) befriended his cellmate, a man named Egidio Exili, who was an Italian chemist who was also proficient in the art of poison. So it's said that Marie used a poison called Aqua Tafana, which was widely used in Italy, and had learned to make it from Saint Croix. And he is said to have learned the method for making it from Egidio. When Saint-Croix died suddenly in July 1672, people started to say that he died in the act of stirring up a batch of aqua tofana. As the legend goes, not realizing his protective glass mask had cracked as he leaned over the fire, he was not protected from the poisonous fumes from the poison that he was compounding. This is definitely one of those stories that sounds great, but the the truth of his death is actually hardly this titillating or ironic. His real story is that he died after having some kind of long illness, and it wasn't really ever suspected that he was part of the deaths of Marie's family. No one mentions whether or not he made poisons, but just that he wasn't suspected in those deaths. When he died, though, boring as his actual (laughs) passing may or may not have been, 
No one came to collect his belongings, and if they had, they would have noticed that he left a note on one particular red leather trunk asking that it be delivered to Marie. So left unclaimed, that trunk was examined by the authorities, as the authorities would do, as were about 30 letters which he had received from Marie while he was in prison. Oh, the paper train. Yeah, oh, here it starts. <laughs> so contained within her writings were some very interesting pieces of information <laughs> that were eventually used against her. Mm. So this is one example. In one letter, she promised to pay Saint-Croix the equivalent of 35000 U.S. dollars about a week after the poisoning of her father occurred. Which I'm sure was so he could buy himself something real pretty. Nothing nefarious. <laughs> but here's the thing. The contents of the trunk. Yes. In this trunk were packets of various poisons, and each packet was labeled with the effects that it would produce. I mean, I'm actually conflicted on this because I really like a well-organized trunk, but I also have a big problem with well-labeled poisons. <laughs> I mean, you don't want poorly labeled poisons. I mean, but you, but you do want them well-labeled, and I actually really wonder which poison packet it, it was the one that produced the vomiting, extreme stomach pains, burning sensation throughout your whole insides. Those were the symptoms that Marie's dad suffered with for months before he died in 1666. Marie was his caretaker, uh, but his condition didn't improve, uh, which we've we've heard that story before when we've told poison. The old caretaker. Exactly. Watch out for your caretaker and your tea. Um, his cause of death, according to his doctor, wasn't actually poison. They were convinced that he had died of complications of gout. And to address the rumor mill, Marie had an autopsy performed on his corpse and nothing suspicious was reported. She was so lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. So the inheritance money that came up after her father's death was divided among Marie and her siblings. Antoine, who was her eldest brother and the heir of the family, received a larger chunk of the cheddar. And really, what about Marie's brothers here? She's gotten her father out of the way, but if she's looking for money, those two still stand in between her and the inheritance. But not for very long. Right? <laughs> that is true. It might not be for very long. <laughs> Just as had happened with their father, they also started suffering from vomiting and inability to eat. Abdominal cramps, bloody stools, swelling, weight loss, and a constant burning feeling inside their stomachs. All of this right before they die. This seems like one of those advertisements for like a pharmaceutical commercial where they've got at the bottom all of the terrible, all of the horrible side side effects that might happen to you just from taking yeah. aspirin, you know. But it will fix that one problem you have. Um, again, in this case, Marie cared for her six siblings. One of her brothers took 72 days to die, the other died after five months. 72 days, what is that about? Um, Two and a half months, and the other took five. Two and, two and some change. Yeah. 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 That's a long time. <laughs> it sounds miserable, it sounds so it's probably awful. felt like years I to them. I can't even imagine. The brothers' death certificates reported they had passed away due to natural causes, amazingly. And if you're keeping score, all of Marie's immediate male relatives are now dead. Ah, uh, but not the husband. So, actually, if you, like us, tend to indulge in a little bit of gallows humor, this moment in Marie's story might make you chuckle. So it's said that Marie actually did try to poison her husband, 
perhaps as many as five or six times <laughs> with the intent that she would finally be able to marry her lover, Sainte Croix. But each time she did, Sainte Croix panicked and gave him the antidote. And this happened over and over on repeat. <laughs> you see, you have to remember they were friends. He's the one who introduced him to Marie. They've known each other for a long time. Apparently there was no bad blood between them. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so Marie then also began plotting the poisoning of her sister and allegedly also the, possibly maybe her sister-in-law who had inherited money from Marie's brother. So this seems like a good moment to take a breather, have something very non-poisonous as a delightful treat. And when we return, we are going to talk about how Marie's homicidal tendencies were finally discovered. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Hey, everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I have been doing my makeup since I was a kid. And I can turn out a look when I need to, but on my day-to-day, -day, I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low-key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. But that also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show, or I'm just running to the grocery store. Something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older <laughs> in that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their brilliant eye brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really like go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. And it's just easy as pie, and it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash criminalia. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash criminalia for 10% off your first order. Welcome back to Criminalia, where we're getting ready to talk about how Marie probably did not poison as many people as some stories might like us to believe. According to the charges against her in 1675, Marie was said to have conspired with her lover to poison her father in 1666, then her two brothers in 1670, all in order to inherit their estates. Among the gossip about her, it was said that it was her lust, greed, and vengeance that motivated her. But there is a fairly large rumor that has also gotten stuck to Marie's story, and we really need to address that. So some accounts of her life and her poisonings accuse her of poisoning uh, at least 50, maybe more people during visits that she made to hospitals. Um, and she was doing these visits allegedly as a way to test the potency of her poisons. Such a good Samaritan. I know. Uh, slash not. <laughs> To be clear, Marie was not charged with any such killings. There is really no good record of her even making these visits, just hearsay that she did it. 
None of these killings ever came up at her trial, nor did she confess to any such things. And as far as we could see, she very likely did poison some people. But based on the research that we've been able to turn up, those victims were her family. They were not random strangers that were hospital patients. It does make for a rounded out story, but it's not a true story. They just can't understand how anyone could have such an organized poison trunk <laughs> if they didn't do a lot of experimentation. Well, we didn't find any sort of like makeshift 17th century spreadsheet about all of the poisons right. and how they worked. <laughs> But so her letters, right? So you're mentioning the trunk. And so the letters were with the trunk. And once those letters were exposed, she fled from Paris um, and she lived on the lam for probably very long years later. She was arrested in Belgium and uh, she was brought back to Paris. To ensure that she confessed to her alleged crimes, authorities turned to that classic standby torture. Hmm. And at this time, the water cure was a popular interrogation method, and it was used extensively to elicit confessions. It was legal in the eyes of the French court, and it actually stayed that way until the 18th century. So today, uh, there's a modified version of the water cure uh, that continues to be used around the world. It has an emphasis on the individual having the sensation of drowning rather than having to consume completely lethal amounts of water. Uh, you'd, you'd know it today as waterboarding. Um, rather than the water cure. And it was legally used by the U.S. and the CIA as recently as 2003. But the one that we're talking about now in regards to Marie was about that lethal drinking of water that Maria just mentioned. So when interrogated with the water cure, an individual was forced to drink extreme amounts of water in a very short span of time. This can result in all sorts of highly uncomfortable and potentially fatal problems, including gastric distension, water intoxication, coma, and water toxemia. So it was also known as the question, and it involved forcing eight pints, which for all of us Americans out here is a gallon, um, of water into a person's stomach. If you were even luckier, you got picked for the extraordinary question, which involved double the amount of water, 16 pints. Marie was given the extraordinary question. During her interrogation, she confessed to the poisoning of her father and to her two brothers. So while Marie's conviction was based on the information that was obtained through the contents of her lover's letters, it really relied on her confession. And that confession is very problematic. As we said, it was given under torture, which should always be a red flag about anyone's presumed innocence or guilt. Right. So Marie survived the extraordinary question, and she was found guilty. She was convicted of the homicidal poisonings of her father and her two brothers and for her own potential financial gain. She was also found guilty of attempting to murder her sister, which she did not confess to during that interrogation. So, right, let's go back to that interrogation for a minute, because Marie had a few other interesting remarks during it. It said that she repeatedly told her torturers, and we're quoting here, half the people I know, people of quality, are involved in this same kind of thing, and I could drag them all down with me should I decide to talk. She was not wrong, but aside from her immediate accomplice, being her beloved, Marie never did implicate anyone else. And she went on to be executed in July of that year, 1676, um, and maybe because they couldn't decide on which was the better method or they just really, really, really wanted to make sure that they killed her. Marie was first beheaded and then she was burned. We should discuss France at this time because poison <laughs> yes. accusations were happening 
at a fever pitch in the country. And Marie's trial was a very hot topic of conversation. So this was a time when there were advancements happening in pharmacology, which is great. That's actually not the point of what's going on here, though. This was also a time when Parisian society couldn't get enough of things like seances and fortune tellers and potent love potions. At this time, black magic was a thing and it was something to be feared. And it also garnered ceaseless fascination. In the 17th century, how poisons affected the body was still poorly understood, and it was really hard to detect poison as a cause of death. As we've talked about in other cases, it was really difficult to place a poisoner at the scene of the crime. Because of these key problems, it was also really hard to get a poison conviction. And in a society where everyone thought they might be poisoned at any moment... This was very distressing. I'm sure it was distressing. Can you imagine? You're like, wow, that lemonade tastes a little funny. I hope I don't die tonight. So accusations were really quick and they were ruthless. And as many of the people that Marie refused to name during her interrogation were in fact later compromised in the following scandal in the years that went on after her trial. And it went as high as the court of King Louis XIV. French paranoia about poison got so bad that anyone with a stomachache really worried that they had been done in. It is said that the king even forced some of his servants to become his royal food tasters. Certainly not the first monarch to do so. This frenzy um, that was happening at this time called the Affair of the Poisons. It went on for about five years, uh, roughly between 1677 and 1682. In 1680, there's a very good record of the number of people who had been implicated. So there were, at that time, 442 suspects and 367 orders of arrests that had been issued, of which those 218 had been carried out. Of those found guilty, 36 had been executed. Five were sentenced to the galleys, which were detention centers at that time rather than warships. They just kept rowing for no good reason, which... Reminds me of going to the gym. 23 were exiled. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, none of these numbers include any of the related suicides that surely happened or the number of people who had been put in prison or had been exiled. Furthermore, many of the accused were never actually brought to trial. Instead, they were just imprisoned for life. Some people, likely more than 100, were condemned to perpetual imprisonment by arrest warrants that had been signed by the king. And it was Marie's trial that had really kicked things off. Those who were charged in the years following her trial, directly after her execution as well, were all upper class, lower class, men, women. Everyone was a suspect during this scandal, which essentially just boiled down to being a witch trial. Yeah, alchemists, counterfeiters, and poisoners, and really anyone and everyone could be accused. It seemed like if you had any skill that not everyone understood, you were automatically suspicious. Yeah, no kidding. Um, Of the many who were accused amid the rumors of a royal poisoning plot, a good number of them were French aristocrats and prominent persons at the court of the king, whose class did not save them from charges of witchcraft and poisoning. Welcome back to Criminalia, where we are about to talk about how Marie's poisonous hand may not have really been about inheritance. Madame de Sévigné, for instance, was a French aristocrat who's remembered for her witty letter writing. 
Now, this is actually important, not just talking about letter writing. Most of her correspondence... Back to the penmanship. I can't help the penmanship. I bet she had a lovely hand. I bet she practiced. Uh, Most of her correspondence actually was addressed to her daughter. But today, her letters are considered to have both historical and literary significance in France. And she's become a bit of an icon in French 17th century literature. She has a connection to Marie. She was present at Marie's execution in July 1676, and she recounted the whole event, including such details as, quote, her poor little body was thrown after the execution into a very big fire and the ashes to the winds so that we shall breathe her. She also observed that, and here's another quote from one of her letters, never has such a crowd been seen, nor Paris so excited and attentive. Marie's trial was really popular, almost as a sort of entertainment. Everyone followed it. And those living in her time and place might have concluded that her behaviors were sociopathic. There is even a quote about her from the time that says, heart she had none, not even for the men she loved. But it's tricky. And modern eyes may be a little more likely to see the tragedy that could be Marie's story. Um, Her story may not be about inheritance, nor about revenge for having had a lover imprisoned. Instead, with today's better understanding of childhood abuse, this may, as Maria said, not be about inheritance at all. What was found while we were researching Marie's life is that this may be really more of a story about a young girl who was repeatedly sexually abused, including at the hands of her own brother, and was not equipped to manage that trauma. Because who would be? Who would be? And it's not like she could call up her local, you know, pick from 20 therapists in in her town to help her out. This was not the case. So for a society that was enthralled by this entire trial, poisoning for love or money would have been a much easier story to parse and get behind. Absolutely. Um, And if Marie was really a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, it could and almost certainly would have impacted her as an adult in so many ways. She may have had post-traumatic stress disorder. She may have experienced really intense and unwanted emotional responses and feelings, um, as well as intense and unwanted physiological sensations. She just probably didn't feel good a lot. She may have felt unable to create close and intimate relationships with other people. And this is just a smattering of possibilities of how her untreated trauma could have impacted her. We're not saying that people who have untreated or treated trauma are murderers but uh, at all. But there are many things that happen to you when things happened to you as a child that you just can't understand as an adult and it could be Marie. Yeah. You know, she definitely did not receive any kind of care for this trauma. And in fact, one time that she did mention it, she mentioned that the relationship that she had with her brother, she mentioned it as a relationship, as like a a an adult sexual partnership when she was 10. Right. So her perspective on things was a little off as well. She's describing what are very adult concepts as though that was something she could have even conceived of as a child, which is not possible. Uh, So we're never going to know her true motivations or even if her statements about her childhood experiences were true. But knowing that she may likely have had all this serious trauma in her past can help inform us as we think about her overall tendencies and her motivations and her behaviors, good or bad. Right. Poor woman. to move on so that we always do end on a more fun note. Yes. Maria, what's your poison? Okay, so 
I had a funny what's your poison for this week. Bring it on. I mean, it's a little embarrassing now because whatever. I I figured we should all just maybe do our own version of the water cure. (laughs) Feeling dehydrated? Um, no. (laughs) I think yours is probably much better. (laughs) Yes, this is where I confess to you that I hate water. I know it's good for me. I try to drink it. I choke it down. But the water cure sounds particularly horrifying to me. I just don't. I just don't like it. You are my soul sister. I have to put something in it. I was not a water drinker when I was a kid. I'm not as an adult. I'm like, why does it taste no. funny? Like, it has a flavor. But it's always icky. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I don't, I'm not a water drinker. No. I, again, I try. I know. Fight dehydration. But yuck. But you can fight dehydration with the lemons and oranges in your drink. <laughs> and scurvy. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I wanted to come up with something that suited Marie's story and her time and place. And I I looked at a few. There are some fun drinks called Love Letters or The Last Love Letter that are all lovely. But what I ended up falling in love with as an idea was a recipe from a cookbook, a French cookbook from 1660. And that cookbook is Le Confiturier Francois. And this is a recipe for how to make lemonade in the 17th century French style. Here is how you make it. (laughs) It starts with just one pint of water and then the juice of six lemons. You also have to juice two oranges. You put half of one of the lemon peels that's been pressed in. You put half of one of the orange peels from an orange that you have pressed in. And here's the kicker. Then you put in half a pound of sugar. That is insane. (laughs) It's a lot of sugar. Oh my God. But then you take all of this citrus juice and water and sugar and you pour it back and forth between two vessels to mix it until you feel like it's pretty well mixed. And then you want to strain it. The original recipe uh, calls for you to strain it through une serviette blanche. That's a white napkin. Oh, I just used a regular kitchen strainer. I'm not so fancy. Right. And then, so... Is it very my, pulpy? My, Does it really need to be... Like, I like pulp. Could, it, could the pulp stay? It, it's pretty pulpy. Okay. Especially because you have those peels that you oh, throw right, in. And right. as you're transferring the water back and forth, like, pieces of pulp break yep. free of those. So we tried it at my house just in its, its lemonade, non-alcoholic form. And it is a lovely lemonade, in fact. All of that sugar, it might be too sweet for some people, <laughs> but because you have so much fresh squeezed lemon juice in there, which is very acidic, it backs off of that a little bit. It, nice. It counters it. But then what we did to make it a yummy cocktail, we used one botanicals, the grapefruit and rose vodka. Oh, beautiful. And just put an ounce and a half in of that. You could also do it with just a grapefruit vodka. And if you have rose syrup, Mm -hmm. it would also be lovely. Now, was the rose your thought or was that in the actual original recipe? Because I think that sounds delicious. No, that's my thought. I think that's a great addition. I want to put rose flavor in everything. I have a little problem. I love it. This was such a beautiful drink. And it's one of those things where I will maybe overshare my husband's thing. He's not a big drinker. He doesn't love... Uh, cocktails like I do. But he had originally said, I'll just stick with the regular lemonade. And then I made mine with the grapefruit and rose vodka. And then he tried it and said, can I just keep this one? (laughs) Uh, So it was a very delicious cocktail. And then I was like... Four gold stars from him. (laughs) That's a huge endorsement from him. If it were not for the fact that it would take me half an hour to cut and juice all that citrus, I would be making this every day. 
our lemons were particularly small, so I used seven instead of six, uh-huh. and it did take some time. <laughs> and I, I'm a little clumsy still with the juicer, and the oranges are too big for a regular juice, like lemon squeezer. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you got to cut them smaller. Mm-hmm. I'm not a graceful cook. I'm pretty good at it, but I'm not very graceful about it. Like the end result is usually I could put it together. It should be but... how it tastes, not how it got put together. I'm not even a big citrus person, and I loved it. So that's a see. I that's am a clear winner. I think this drink is the best one that we've done so far. Like I'm, I'm going to absolutely make this. This sounds great. I think you should. So that concludes this episode of Criminalia. Thank you so much for joining us. Yay. Criminalia is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.